Well, we're back into a new year, and we're picking up our Revelation series again. We're in chapter 7 today. And if you want to open your Bible, your print Bible, you can do that, or your app on your smartphone, and the scripture will be on the slides as well. Well, my family and I had a great Christmas break. Uh, we left on Boxing Day, headed out to Fairmont, B.C., in eastern B.C., got in some sleigh riding, some hot tubbing. And uh, also, two great ski days for me, one at Kicking Horse in Golden, and they had 30 centimeters of powder in 30 hours, so it was pretty amazing. And then I got another day in at Panorama Mountain uh, by Invermere. Now, Air Canada was going to charge me $82 for my ski bag. Uh, so I said, forget that, I can rent my skis and poles twice for that, so I chose just to take my own ski boots and rent my poles and skis. Now, at Panorama, I got there and I found the rental shop. Uh, let's not show that picture quite yet, because that's the nice ski boot. Um, we're at, so I get into the, the rental shop, and I pay, uh, I pay my money, fill out the form, and the lady says, okay, now that you've uh, done that, you can just head over to the technician. So I get over there, and it's this uh, really young guy, and he says, okay, so uh, just give me one of your ski boots. Now, here's my ski boot. It's a little beaten up. It's old, whatever. But I didn't think it was that bad. And uh, he gets it, and he, he loads it in his ski, and he's like, whoa, these are old, eh? <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, you know, they're had them for a while. I'm thinking, yeah, getting, getting soon time to maybe get a new pair. He goes, oh, no, man, you're already there. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, little punk, just, uh, just adjust the bindings and put the skis on. And then he starts going on. He's like, you know, I'm 24 years old. These things might be older than me. I'm like, just stop. As I'm walking out, I'm thinking, oh, kid, it's unbelievable, whatever. And then I started thinking, you know, I got those in college. Actually, he just might be right. Which got me thinking about brand new ski boots. And he goes, you know, dude, they have these awesome new boots. They're created in three parts, so they flex. They claim they're as, as comfortable as running shoes. So it got me interested. So I started looking it up, and here are the brand new incredible ski boots for the mere price of 555 bucks, they can be yours too. So I'm kind of waiting for an end of the season sale, and uh, we'll see what I can get for. But you know what? Even when I get brand new ski boots, they will serve exactly the same function, exactly the same purpose as my old ski boots, to lock me into my skis so I can go way too fast for a 46-year-old through the powder and down the steep hills. Now that is actually roughly analogous to Revelation chapter 7, believe it or not, because we get to see God's people in two groups, the first model and the second model, and they form exactly the same function. They have the same purpose. Don't worry, it'll all make sense as we dive in. But before we get back into Revelation, we just need to be reminded of a few of the things that we learned this fall in order to properly understand this amazing book. Uh, we learned that the title is actually the Apocalypse of Jesus. 
Now that word apocalypse, when we hear that, we automatically think end of the world, flames, everything's burning and blowing up, and if you watch TV shows or movies, there will be apparently zombies running around. That's what we tend to think when we hear the word apocalypse. But in the original meaning, that actually means to reveal, to pull back the veil. So the apocalypse of Jesus is to reveal Jesus in all of his glory and majesty and power. All right, number two, Revelation certainly talks about the future, but it is anchored in the first century. And we saw that so clearly in our nine sermons this fall in Revelation. Over and over and over again, as we dug into that original context in the first century, so many mysterious things were cleared up. One of the examples that stuck out from the fall that was so great was uh, when Dwight Geiger guest spoke. And he took us through the letter to the church of Laodicea. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth. Now, if you grew up in church, you heard the interpretation of that was that hot is what you want to be. That kind of signals faith and passion for your faith cold you don't want to be that that means you're dead and lifeless and and you don't want to you have you have no faith at all and lukewarm is worse because you don't really care about either option now dwight took us back to the first century context and we all of a sudden learned that up above the town of laodicea is another place called hierapolis and there's an amazing hot spring you can still go to turkey and see that today it actually spills over in these incredible, beautiful white pools. The, the minerals create this white effect, and the hot water spills over and over and over. Well, back in the first century, the Romans said, this is amazing. We're going to pipe this. Now you think, they didn't have PVC pipe. How in the world did they build it? Well, they actually chiseled out pipes out of stone. My word, what an effort, what a feat. And so they piped the hot water all the way from that place to the town of Laodicea. Then they took the cold water from the river, used similar pipes, and both waters got to the town. There's no natural water in Laodicea. It needs to be piped in. But by the time the hot water got there, it was lukewarm. And by the time the cold, beautiful, fresh, amazing water got there, it too was lukewarm. So what Jesus was actually saying is, I would, and you hear it in his words, he says, I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. This never made sense to me as a kid. Why did Jesus, if cold means no faith, why did Jesus like that? That's not what he meant at all. He's meaning cold water is life-giving, refreshing, it quenches your thirst, the cold or the hot is amazing what jesus said i don't like is when your faith in your deeds are lukewarm so it's a very clear example one of many during the fall of how the original context helped us understand revelation so much better number three revelation is the special genre of literature called apocalyptic literature now we know genres we know we can pick up a mystery novel we know there's going to be a detective, there's going to be a crime, there's going to be clues, all those kind of things. We know romance novels, we know science fiction. 
We know there's going to be high tech and spaceships and aliens when we pick up a sci-fi novel. Well, apocalyptic literature is a, is a style of literature that had about a 500-year run. And there are always, in every single apocalyptic literature, there are always symbolic animals, beasts, angels, and numbers. And we re- when we realize and understand that, then our first impulse isn't to automatically take them literally, but instead ask, what do these animals and angels and numbers, what do they symbolize? And as we move into the second half of our Revelation series, I'm going to add one more thing that will keep us on the right track. The really important question as you read through the book of Revelation is not to ask what happens next, but rather what did John see and hear next? And the difference there is that not everything in Revelation follows a strict chronological order. It's not like this happened, then this, then this. Sometimes the, revel- the visions jump around in time. Sometimes the visions take you way back into the ancient past. Sometimes it's in the first century context where John was. Sometimes it's way into our future. And they're not always in perfect order. So the important thing is, what did John see and hear next? All right, so we got our little basic guidelines straight. Now we can jump in. I've entitled the first point, The Great Tribulation. When does that happen? We're going to pick it up in Revelation 7, 1 through 3. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And then in verse 13 and 14, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amazing stuff. So the great tribulation, you see the angels that are held back from unleashing that. And then you, you see after these people who have come through the great tribulation. Now, when I grew up in church, I was taught that the great tribulation was a unique, special event to occur at some future date just prior to Jesus' second coming, when he comes back. Now, at that point in the Great Tribulation, and it was uh, speculated to be maybe a seven-year period, extreme pressure of one kind or another will be put on all Christians during that time. And those who survive are going to survive the Great Tribulation. Now, during that time, it was speculated that the number 666 would be stamped on your hand or your forehead, Uh, Christians would be persecuted, they would be killed, they wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell anything. That was the Great Tribulation. But here's the deal. That's not actually what John is saying. 
Scholar Edwin Walhut says this. He says, look to the second half of the sentence. Namely, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John is talking about all Christians. The great tribulation does not mean some future crisis, but the constant pressure every Christian is under always, every day, to persevere in faith and obedience. Daryl Johnson agrees, adding, There are the ones who come out of these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation, not who came out or who will come out, but who come out, implying constantly. Something was happening in AD 96 when John received this revelation from Christ, and it continues today. Then this is what he says. The best picture of this I know is a geological one. Beneath the earth's crusts are tectonic plates, huge masses of rock that slowly, constantly move. Periodically, they come up against one another and collide, resulting in an earthquake. The pressure, the crushing pressure experienced at that point where the tectonic plates collide is called tribulation. The great tribulation is what takes place when the kingdom of God invades this world comes up against those kingdoms that are inconsistent with it. Okay, so the Great Tribulation has been going on ever since Jesus ascended after his resurrection until he comes again. So what difference does that actually make in your life and my life right now? Well, it explains why everything isn't automatically easy when you sign up to follow Jesus. If you were told that when you first became a Christian, I'm sure the person who told it to you was well-intended, but they were wrong. In fact, it doesn't take too many years of living the Christian life before all of a sudden it occurs to you, you know what? It feels like I'm walking through resistance. Sometimes it feels harder to follow Jesus in this world. Yes, it is, because we are part of different kingdoms. We are in the Great Tribulation. And you know what? We're protected here as Canadians from a lot of the intense physical and emotional violence that so many parts of the world experience. But if you interviewed someone who lived through the Rwanda or Bosnian genocides, or someone who is currently a refugee from a godless dictator like Bashar al-Assad in Syria or Kim Jong-un in North Korea, They would tell you Christians are in the Great Tribulation right now. And why? Because we belong to different kingdoms. Now, having said that, it is also true that at that tribulation point, at that collision point between the two kingdoms, God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world, that's also where the action is. That's where the blessing is. Many of us have been praying for an opening in the high school. Ever since I started here in January of 2010, the high school's been going along, and it's been so great that we have Christian teachers, like our own Rod Alsop is there as a teacher. Different teachers are are Christian believers there. But the school hasn't been an easy place for the church to serve in. There's been some closed doors. Well, this past year, there was a big administrative change, And the new principal and the new vice are incredibly open. The Christians, uh, 
the principal is a Christian guy, goes to a church in Nanaimo, amazing guy. And our uh, oldest, Callista, is now in high school. How did that happen? She was just this high a few, few minutes ago. And uh, so Lori had a lot to do with the principal initially, just helping Callista get settled into school. And uh, at the end of kind of their stuff, she said to him, she said, uh, Principal Dave, she said, what's a way, what's your greatest need in this school? And he said, well, that's easy. He goes, a number of years ago, we had a food program for kids who are coming that don't eat breakfast. He goes, we have a little over 600 students at this high school, and probably 150 of them come without having eaten breakfast. And he goes, you know what happens to a kid who doesn't eat breakfast? By about 11 o'clock, they can't concentrate. They can't focus anymore. And he said, we had this going about six years ago, but the people who were heading it up left, and it's just kind of fallen down. He goes, we as a staff really want to see this take part. And so they set it up before Christmas to have a meeting in January. Well, Lori got to go to that meeting this week. And uh, she was sitting there with the principal, vice principal, teachers, and uh, they were just so excited. And Lori's going to head it up and use all of you. You're going to be volunteering, by the way, just to <laughs> let you know. And, uh, and uh, the 49th Groceries jumped in and given all the stuff at, at cost. And so they're going to do fruit and then uh, sandwiches. And so Lori and all the volunteers are going to create that. She gets to use students involved in that. And uh, they're having this meeting, and Rob Hutchins, our former mayor, walks by, sees all these people in this meeting, and Rob's been around forever, so he kind of has the right to do whatever he wants. He just opens the door and goes, what are you guys talking about in here? And the teacher says, well, we're talking about the food program, the idea that we can feed kids and we can have fruit and sandwiches free of cost available for these students. And he goes, is Ocean View Community Church involved? And they're like, yeah, actually. He goes, is that woman, Lori Phillips, involved? And they're like, yeah. He goes, we will give you every bit of bread from the bakery you need, free of cost. And it occurs to me that when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms of this world, that it is both dangerous, but it is the place of opportunity. It's the place where the action is. Let's keep going. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. Tribe of Naphtali, now 12,000. Tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. And then jumping down to verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, 
Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. Nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Three years ago, I was coming back on the BC ferries from Vancouver, from Tawasin to Duke Point. It's in the evening. I'm grabbing dinner. I got my Bible out, my laptop. I'm working on a sermon. And this guy walks by me, and he looks at the Bible on the table, and he goes, well, good to see somebody's reading the good book. So I kind of lift up my head, and I said, yeah, thanks. I said, I'm a pastor. I'm working on a sermon. I said, do you, do you go to a church? He said, yeah, I go to the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah Witnesses. Can I sit and talk with you? And inside I thought, oh, I got a sermon to finish. I hope this doesn't take too long. <laughs> so we had this great chat, and, and he was great. And we had this back and forth, and we're asking each other questions. And finally he goes, so do you guys go door to door as well? And I was like, absolutely not, man. That's a dead method. We leave that up to you guys. And then he looks at me and goes, oh yeah, it doesn't work that good for us either. <laughs> I mean, honestly, whose idea was that? Let's go annoy people. Anyways, now the Jehovah Witnesses' belief is that even more tragic than door-to-door, -door, in my estimation, is what they have done with this number, 144,000. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that this is the amount of faithful Jehovah Witnesses believer from all of history. This is the best of the best, the cream of the crop. And that 144,000 gets to experience heaven. All the rest of the Jehovah Witnesses will be resurrected for eternity, but they will can be confined to earth for eternity. Now then there's all the rest of us who don't buy into Jehovah Witness belief and doctrine and we get to go to a place called Gehenna, which is Greek for hell. That sounds fun. Now, what a sad deal, ultimately. If you think about it, only the cream of the crop, the 144,000, make it to heaven. Now remember what I said in our review about apocalyptic literature. Numbers are to be taken symbolically. Well, not the Jehovah Witnesses. They took this number literally, and they built a whole belief of salvation around it. That is not good reading of Revelation. So if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? I'm so glad you asked. The whole first half of the Bible constantly references the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel that make up the nation. 
Patriarch Jacob was promised to have a great nation come from his 12 sons. 12 tribes times 12,000 people equals exactly 144,000. This is a highly symbolic number. It is a Jewish way of saying a massive amount of people. Now this happens over and over and over again in Scripture. Think of the moment with Jesus and Peter. And Peter says, puts up his hand, he's like, Jesus, when someone offends me, when someone's done me wrong, how many times do I have to forgive them? And Peter, thinking that he's going all out and being super generous, says, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, was Jesus saying, when you get to number 491, you're done. You don't have to forgive them anymore. At that point, that's too many times, you're done. No, that's a Jewish way of saying a huge amount of times. And that happens over and over and over in Scripture. Now, beyond that, I want to take a look at this list of the 12 tribes of Israel. On the left is the Old Testament list. Now, whenever the 12 tribes appear in the Old Testament, who's first? Reuben is always first. He's the oldest. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. But in Revelation 7, we come to a brand new list. And Reuben isn't first. Judah is first. Now, John was an ethnic Jew, raised from birth in Jewish culture. He would have known this genealogical list, and Jews take genealogical lists very seriously. This is your heritage. This is your identity, who you come from, who you're related to. But John feels free to change the list. Why? Because it is from Judah that the Messiah was to come. Since Jesus, the Messiah, has come, the entire list changes. Judah is first. Now, if you compare the two lists, you'll notice a name, Dan, the tribe of Dan, on the left in the Old Testament list. But yet, in Revelation 7, there is no tribe of Dan listed. And Manasseh is put in its place. Why? John is making a theological statement. Something has happened in the coming of the Messiah that has changed the nature of Israel. John need not honor ex the exact literal list anymore because Israel has changed. Daryl Johnson says this, in particular, the purpose of Israel is now being realized. Israel is called and chosen not for Israel's sake alone, but for the sake of all peoples, all tongues, all ethnicities. He has, as the heavenly choir sang in Revelation 5, 9, purchased for God with his blood men and women from every tribe. That's the difference. What Israel was designed and called to do, now the church in Jesus is fulfilling. What does it all mean? Well, again, Daryl says the 144,000, a hugely symbolic number, represents the complete number of God's people, now made up of both Jews and and Gentiles. John then turns and sees a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, language, 
standing before the Lamb and before the throne. They're wave, wearing white robes and waving palm branches. The second part of the vision is a continuation of the first. Way back in Genesis 12:3, in the very first book of the Bible, God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All along, God's call on ethnic Israel was for the nations. All along, God's call on the Jews was for the Gentiles. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is now fulfilling that call by bringing all the nations to himself. What an amazing vision. The new Israel, the church, the multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual followers of Jesus. John the pastor is telling his flock and us that they are guaranteed to be part of this new reality for all eternity. Now that is inclusive. If you have responded to Jesus in repentance and faith, eternity is going to be spent rubbing shoulders with Jamaicans and Norwegians and Zimbabweans and Mexicans. Eternity is going to be talking with and enjoying the best of the culture of Russia, South Africa, New Zealand, India, Iraq, Kyrgyzstan, and America. The last and most important piece we need from Revelation chapter 7 is what all of these people, the 144,000, the multitude dressed in white, they have all received the same thing, a seal. So I've entitled my last point, We Are Sealed, and It Is Awesome. Revelation 7, verses 2 through 4. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Well, this seal sounds like a big deal. It's important. And we can understand it by looking in two different places. First of all, in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, as well as in first century culture. In first century, slaves were sealed with a mark on their forehead. And it was like a particular branch. And so by looking at a slave, you knew whose property they were, who they belonged to. And in exactly the same symbolism, someone who commits their life to Jesus Christ as, as, as their Lord and Savior, we now belong to Jesus. We are bondservants of Jesus. We have been sealed. We are owned by him, and he has bought us with the price of his life. No one, nothing can take us away from it. It actually says in John 10, 28, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Not even the great tribulation. So that's first century culture. And then back in the first half of the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 9, he got a vision of, of God's judgment on Jerusalem. They had rebelled against God, run after idols, and now God is sending six angels to destroy the city of Jerusalem. But just before the angels are unleashed, they're stopped by God. And he says, do not harm anyone who is marked with a seal on their forehead. 
And so those two streams, Old Testament and first century culture, come together. And John sees in this vision that every single believer, all down through history, the massive multitude stretching far off into the future, have the seal of God on them. Well, what does the seal do? Two things. Number one, it protects. It protects us from having our faith destroyed when we experience the great tribulation. Seal guarantees that as servants of God all throughout this world, that we will make it. Our faith will survive. Our faith won't falter. So it protects, and then it does a second thing. It actually enables faith. The the seal of God allows us to experience the worst this world has to offer, to go through trials, tribulations, really hard things, and instead of breaking us, it enables our faith to grow. And you know it, don't you? When you meet someone who's gone through terrible trials and tribulations and awful stuff, but their faith has been refined. They have an incredible, solid, shining, vibrant kind of faith. And that's what the seal of God. So do we get a literal stamp on our forehead? No. We get something far better. We get the seal of the Holy Spirit living inside of us changing us into the men and women that God wants us to be. Receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that guides and directs us to be the teenagers, seniors, young adults that God wants us to be. The rest of the Bible has a lot to say about this. I want to read you some verses. Ephesians 1.13 And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. The longer we follow Jesus, the longer we keep praying, Lord, Change me. Chip off the rough edges. Sculpt and mold me so I look more like you in my actions and my words. The longer we pray that, the more our character changes. The more unchurched people run into us and go, there's something different about you. What is it? They are seeing the seal of the Holy Spirit on each and every follower of Jesus. So what happens when followers of Jesus, the ones with a seal, go through the great tribulation. Daryl Johnson is careful to say we are made secure, not safe. We're not insulated. In the nature of things, that is not possible, but we are secure. No one and nothing can take us out of Jesus Christ's hands. We are sealed by his Holy Spirit. And that's where this sermon all comes together this morning. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that The moment you sign up to follow Jesus, everything's a cakewalk. It's smooth or you'll never have any problems. But it won't be. In part because you belong to the kingdom of God. And it's against, it's opposed by the kingdom of Satan and this world. There will be tough times in your life. Sometimes so tough you want to give up. But here is the incredible thing. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Because we have the mightiest being in all of creation protecting our faith, 
All we need to do is cry out for strength and keep on believing when life hits the fan. That's really important when you don't get the job that you prayed for. And it seems in that moment like your faith might wobble. It's really important when the couple finds out that they're not able to have a child. It seems like your faith might wobble in that moment. It's really important for the high school student when their friend betrays their confidence and embarrasses them in front of their peers. They just want to hide in the corner. It seems like their faith might wobble in that moment. It's really important when you're a senior and your health is failing, you feel like maybe God isn't listening to your prayers. It seems like your faith might wobble in that moment. And then along come the words of Revelation 7. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen? Carmen.